following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 27th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll talk about college football's rivalry week, where pesky Michigan took down Ohio State again, and Alabama maybe got lucky against Auburn. We'll also discuss the noise coming out of Baton Rouge, where LSU women's basketball star Angel Reese isn't playing, and coach Kim Mulkey isn't saying why. And finally, the Wall Street Journal's Jonathan Clegg will be here to explain the huge penalty the Premier League slapped onto Everton and whether mega clubs Manchester City and Chelsea will get punished next. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our new season on 1990 is out now, so please subscribe and tune in to our premiere episode about Pizza Hut and the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, I'm a big Josh fan. I hope oh, everybody wow. knows this. Wow. And I'm not saying this just because Josh is a friend, uh, you know, one of the best uh, colleagues you could have. It really is like a fantastic episode. It's really surprising. And, you know, it's funny because randomly I'd been thinking about Mikhail Gorbachev. I thought you were going to say randomly I was thinking about Pizza Hut, but no. You, you, you surprised no, me. No, no, unfortunately, no. I mean, I, I haven't thought about Pizza Hut in quite a <laughs> while, actually. Uh, but uh, the Mikhail Gorbachev commercial for Pizza Hut, it's something to behold. Like, even if, like, listening to it is one thing, also watching it. Like, I encourage you after you listen to Josh's episode to go find that thing on YouTube because it's actually kind of amazing. I'll just say that the reason I listened to One Year is to pick up those historical facts that the press missed at the time, like the fact that Pizza Hut was responsible for the collapse of the Soviet Union. (laughs) You were a reporter at the time. How did you miss that? I know. Just not good enough. Better luck next time. Uh, Also here with me in spirit in DC is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books Word Freak, Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. And to you and yours. Uh, Joel Anderson has already piped up. Last week, Joel, you published a piece on Slate with the headline, The Horrible Lawsuit Against Sean Combs Took Many People by Surprise. Not me. A little braggy, you know, but that's okay. And we don't write the headlines, right, Joel? (laughs) Yeah, we We don't write the headlines. uh, I don't write the headlines. It doesn't mean that it's not accurate, (laughs) but I I didn't write it. (laughs) I didn't write that accurate headline. No, the piece is great. It's a bracing reminder of everything Puffy has been accused of in his long career in the public eye, including an allegation relevant to your you know, past reporting that he'd offered to pay a million dollars for someone to kill Tupac and Suge Knight. Yeah, man. It's kind of crazy. If you had told me 25 years ago that I'd be writing about uh, Sean Diddy Combs and his role in Tupac's murder, I would have I mean, I wouldn't have believed it, but, you know, man, I, like you, you made things so unfun, Josh, by bringing this up. Now I've got to be well, serious. All right. guy. Let me just say but, that, you know, just for people <laughs> who don't know, Mason Cameron's show isn't just for breaking NBA rumors anymore. No, no. I, I you know, I, I got to say that's one of the most fun of it. That's some of the most fun I've ever had uh, tracking down a YouTube clip for a story. I got to be honest. Uh, but yeah, man, you know, uh, Diddy's done a lot of stuff over the years, and uh, it's worth uh, looking at again in, in retrospect and, and seeing the, the people and the lives he's affected o- 
along the way. It's not all been good stuff. It's not all been fun, right? Yeah, man, I got like an opportunity to write about that. Also, I just have to say, because you took me in a totally different direction, Josh. I literally forgot that Thanksgiving was Thursday. <laughs> like until you brought it up, <laughs> it seemed like it was forever ago. So thank you for reminding me. Happy. I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. All right. Before we get to our first segment, I just want to say a few kind words. I guess it can be uh, up to you uh, how kind you think they are about our Slate Plus members who have supported us, have allowed us to make this show, um, and to, I think, get a nice uh, little deal in return with our weekly bonus segments. This week, we're going to continue our conversation about college football and really focus in on Michigan interim coach Sharon Moore. The offensive coordinator led them to win over Ohio State. What should he do next? Should he stick around? Um, should teams be falling all over themselves to hire him? It's a really fascinating moment for him and in the college football hiring cycle, and we will get into it. Uh, you'll get a bonus segment on Hang Up and Listen every week if you're a Slate Plus member. You get it on other shows too, the bonus segments, and you get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash Plus. That's Slate.com slash Plus to sign up. For the last month, the Michigan football program has been besieged by reports that a staffer ran a comprehensive sign-stealing operation involving teams of people videotaping opponents' sidelines, secret payments, all sorts of other sinister-seeming skullduggery that you've heard about if you listen to this show. The Wolverines head coach Jim Harbaugh paid the price for those allegations, or at least paid a price, getting suspended by the Big Ten Conference for three regular season games, including Michigan's annual showdown with Ohio State. It's hard to overstate how much was on the line in Ann Arbor on Saturday with Harbaugh not in attendance, but with uh, both the Wolverines and the Buckeyes undefeated. For all the drama and the agita off the field and the stakes on it, the outcome was exactly the same as it was in 2021 and 2022, with the Wolverines ripping the heart out of their hated rivals. The final score, Michigan 30, Ohio State 24. Here is Ohio State coach Ryan Day after the game. Well, we know that um, what this game means to so many people, and um, and so to come up short is certainly uh, crushing, not only uh, just because you invest your whole year in it. We know at Ohio State what this game means. And so, um, no, there's, there's a locker room in there that's devastated. If you're wearing headphones, you might have heard in the background the whoops of celebration from Michigan as Ryan Day was uh, being crushed and sounding crushed. Joel, Ohio State was driving for what could have been the winning score. This was a competitive game. It came down to a handful of plays um, as opposed to Ohio State's previous two losses in this series, which were comprehensive beatdowns. But I've got to think that this one maybe because of that close score, was even more devastating. What do you think? Before I get started, I just want to take a step back for a second and just appreciate what we got to witness on Saturday. Like the stakes of this game, the the intensity, the pageantry of, you know, almost 115,000 people crammed into one old stadium to watch this game. And it just brings to mind all the things that you've seen in this rivalry over the years. You know, David Boston backpedaling on Charles Woodson, Tim Biakabatuka running for 300 plus yards. And I have to say the reason the Tim Biakabatuka thing stands out to me is that when I was a freshman in college, we had to watch, we had to watch cutups of Tim Biakabatuka running this play called 34 Belly over and over again. So that game is just like 
seared under my brain. But um, you just get so much of a feeling of like the agony of being on the wrong side of it just by watching it on TV, right? Like what it's like to be John Cooper or Rich Rodriguez or Jim Harbaugh or now Ryan Day. And so empathetic of you. Really? Yeah. Like you usually just, you know, people forget that, you know, the trolling Joel Anderson, the the guy who revels <laughs> in uh, other fan bases' defeats, that you have this kind of soft side of you, that you think of, you're thinking of Ohio State on, on this difficult day for them. It really took me back to like all the times in my life I've been watching that game, you know, as a football fan. Like, I, I don't know how you can like look at that and not just appreciate what we're all in this for. But now I'll start hating a little <laughs> bit. So... There's this video of Ohio State gathered on the field before the game. It's a little bit before kickoff. And Yahoo Sports posted on their account with a caption, the Buckeyes were getting all caps loose before the game, okay? And it's like this one receiver doing something goofy, (laughs) another guy doing something, and they look so tight. Like, you actually see Marvin Harrison at the end of the circle, and he's doing nothing. Like, he's just standing there, and I'm like... They don't look loose at all. Like they, they look terrified. And I actually think it was reflected in their start to the game. Like Ohio State and Michigan, very evenly matched teams. Like I don't think anybody that anybody trying to make a referendum on these two programs out of this game is an idiot because the game was very close. What I think the difference was is that Ohio State came out very slow. They looked a little nervous. Kyle McCord throws that interception deep in his own territory. He throws behind Marvin Harrison, and Marvin Harrison doesn't fight over Will Johnson to complete the route, and there's an interception, and Michigan scores four plays later. They're ahead. They never trail the rest of the game. And I think that because of that, because Ohio State played so jittery early on and because they were trailing, they were running uphill all game long, and they just were never able to catch up. So I think that that's as much anything. So, Stefan, I don't, you know... I know that there's time to talk about Ryan Day and what his future is there and what the fans, the expectations of them are. But I just don't know how anybody can look at that game and say, oh, Ohio State is fatally flawed in some sort of way and they'll never be able to catch up with Michigan or Jim Harbaugh. Which is why, again, getting probably a little bit too far ahead of ourselves, it seems a little bit preposterous to say, oh, Ohio State isn't as good as the other three teams that are going to make the playoff. And Ohio State sort of, I guess, maybe in some world could make the playoff. But yeah, that the beginning of that game. I mean, look, Joel, you've played in front of lots of people. That is an intimidating atmosphere. There's 106 or 8 or 10,000 people in that stadium. Um, it is energetic. It is fun if you are on the home team. And it has to make you feel a little bit nervous, especially given the way Ohio State lost, got blown out the last two games in Columbus and in Ann Arbor the year before that. And it kind of showed at the beginning of the game. You mentioned the interception, but you also had what appeared to be really tentative play calling by Ryan Day, not going for it on fourth and one on Ohio State's second drive around midfield, letting the clock run down late in the first half and trying a 52-yard field goal when they had 30 seconds to 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 go for it on fourth and two at Michigan's 34 um, and maybe go in front with a touchdown. Um, the field goal was not converted. So I don't know how these things work. What Ryan Day is thinking on the sidelines, you know, he defended the decision not to go for it on fourth and two, but it did feel like Ohio state was tentative early on. And we're fortunate to only be down 14, 10 at the half. Cause that was an even game. Otherwise. 
if you look back at the recent history of this rivalry, it obviously wasn't long ago that Michigan was losing every time out yeah. against Ohio State and remade their program to counteract that and to try to beat this one team, their big, not only their big rival, but the team that was standing in their way from making it to the Big Ten title game, from making it to the playoff. And it worked. Um, they pounded Ohio State into submission more in, in 21 and 22 than in 23. But, uh, you know, even with knowing all of that and remembering all of that, it still seems kind of like loser talk to me for Ohio State, in turn, Joel, to just really be buying into this, mm-hmm. oh, we have to prove to everyone how tough we are. Mm-hmm. Um, like, who cares what Lou Holtz, like literal Lou Holtz, who's right. 128 years old, is telling you you're not <laughs> tough enough, and it's gotten into their heads. And they, you know, look, it's great to have a good defense. It was smart of them to in- invest in that side of the ball and not have to rely on their offense every game. But seeing them be conservative, not pursue a higher variance strategy that you might pursue if you're an underdog and just want to pound the ball and kind of out Michigan, Michigan, it just seems like just be comfortable with who you are, like do you, and beat them like you always used to beat them. It just seems like they've gotten inside their own heads and Michigan has gotten inside their own head. All of that's to say they're not, they're just not far, that far behind and they never were. Right. I mean, it's just a fallacy. I mean, they they were 11 and 0 coming into the team. Like to the game. They're they're tough enough. Here's the thing. You have Marvin Harrison Jr., you have Travion Henderson, they don't. So like who gives a fuck how tough you are? Like you can you can open it up and embarrass them on the edges. I thought that Ohio State looked like the more athletic and more explosive team. Um, and I don't know if the reason that they couldn't exploit that is that, what, maybe they were scared of Kyle McCord because he played so tentatively early and thrown that interception. Maybe they, they got scared off that way or whatever. I don't know what they didn't see, but I just, you, you got to think. I mean, I got to get more out of Marvin Harrison and Amika Ebuka and, and, and Cade Stover and, and, and Travion Henderson than what they got. And that, to me, that's the feeling. You're right. Like, if they got suckered into, like, we got to get into a street fight with these guys, then that's dumb. Um, but, I mean, there is something that's sort of lost to that. Like, they were as tough as Michigan. Like, there was that drive. They ran the ball incredibly effectively in the second half, Joel. They outgained Michigan yeah. like, offensively in this game. Like, they had the best offensive performance against Michigan anybody's had this year. If, if Ohio State fans are tripping over that, then they're tripping over the wrong thing. It was really an even game. And maybe... You know, Ohio State fans realize that. I kind of doubt it. I, I think that the fact that Ryan Day is now one and three against Michigan is going to really loom large all offseason. And they've built this game into being, um, they haven't built it. Like the entire history of the rivalry has built this game <laughs> into being right, right. the kind of defining thing to decide if the season is a success or not. And I would argue that if they were to stand pat, that there's a better chance that they'll win a national title next year than Michigan does. Obviously, I think this is Michigan's year. They've got the they've got the veteran quarterback. They've got the veteran skill position guys. They've got the veterans on defense. They, um, you know, have I think everything that they need. And also, even though there are a bunch of undefeated teams, it seems like a historically weak 
crop of contenders. Like, this is not the Georgia team of the previous two years. This is not a vintage Alabama uh, team. All right. Well, I right, mean, like, I mean, Michigan want to try that tough guy shit with Georgia. Let's see. You know what I'm saying? No, like, I mean, you wanna, Georgia. You want They want to slug it out with Georgia. Let's I, see. I'm not, I'm, I'm I'm not saying that they're going to kill Georgia, but I'm saying they have a better chance against this Georgia than against the Stetson Bennett Georgia. I would I would argue, but maybe not. Anyway, I, I think that this is Michigan's year is my point. I don't think next year mm-hmm. is Michigan's year, breaking in a new right. quarterback, et cetera, and so forth. Right. And so I, I guess the question is, Stefan, does Ohio State have the fortitude, the self-belief, to say, if we actually just keep doing what we're doing, we're going to be fine. Twelve te- And also there's a 12-team playoff. There will never be a, a mm-hmm. Michigan-Ohio State game like this again. There will never be any rivalry game like this again. That is the last game of the season for one of these two teams. Right. That's exactly or right. Or that if you, like, Ohio State made the playoff last year um, and losing this game. And it's kind of an anomaly that there are so many teams that are undefeated this year. Like, historically, that Ohio, like, I think in most years, Ohio State would actually be in a four-team playoff, and they still might be. But next year, Stefan, if they are undefeated and lose this game, they'll be like, you know, probably have a home game in the 12 team playoff. Yeah. There are still things to consider here, right? Like, what if? I mean, I don't think Michigan's going to lose to Iowa, right? But Georgia, Alabama, Florida State, Washington, they could all lose, I think. Um, it's certainly possible and more likely than Michigan losing to Iowa in the Big Ten championship game. So do Ohio State and Alabama and Oregon have, you know, are they spending this week thinking, no, we're going to make the playoff. We just got to win this game. For sure. I mean, if Oregon, if Oregon wins over Washington, I think they're, they're in and would be in a better position than Ohio State is. I think, um, you know, Michigan and Georgia, obviously, if they win, they're in. And then you have the whole, like, Texas, Alabama scenario, yeah. if they both end up with one loss and are going up against each other. I just think, you know, Ohio State's win over Notre Dame doesn't kind of play like it did last year. And it just feels like, even though it's supposed to be just considering this season, Joel, I just feel like the narrative of them losing three times in a row to Michigan, it's just, it seems like a harder argument to make this season than maybe it was last season. Well, there's also going to be just recency bias. They lost, Alabama won, Oregon won, Texas won, they're going to have the psychological advantage when the, the 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 suits decide who gets to be in the playoff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the wrong note for Ohio State to have lost on. You know, I mean, the narrative is what it is, but I mean, we can't pretend like Ohio State or Michigan had like tough schedules this year. So it has to be like if you lose the one game that you play against somebody that can punch back, it should be determinative, right, um, under this system that maybe – the loser shouldn't get another chance at it with all these other pretty decent teams waiting waiting in line. So um, you, you hate that because I like Ohio State. I like watching them play. Like I, I want to see Marvin Harrison. I want to see Travion Henderson, but it's just not their year. And yeah, maybe next year. We haven't actually even talked about Jim Harbaugh. He's back for the Big Ten title game. He said that uh, watching that game was the hap- one of the happiest moments of his life. So I'm he didn't glad. have to work. I'm glad. I'm glad for him. I'm glad he's enjoying himself so much. For cheetahs, never prosper. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, say a quick word about the Iron Bowl. Um, I I don't even know, Joel. I, I I don't even know. I mean, for one thing, you you were talking in the beginning about these are the reasons why we watch um, these games. 
there are these games that develop shorthand, and fourth and thirty-one, I think, is going to be something that um, Man. flashes to mind. Like Auburn's up by four, they rush three, but one guy is just kind of standing there, a spy, like a spy, a spy. thinking that Jalen Milrow <laughs> is just going to run unimpeded thirty-one yards into the into the end zone. Yeah. Just like mathematically, it seems almost impossible to drop that many guys into coverage and still leave a guy one-on-one. But to their credit, Jalen Milrow throws the pass. Isaiah Bond comes up and, and catches it. and just Doesn't like, just come and up all... and catch it, Josh. He comes up I mean, facing the ball back to the end zone it's... with about a foot to spare and gets both. Gets that foot down. And gets, gets the foot, foot down. down, too. Like, it's... It's I think we're kind of we're kind of like immune to the how good wide receivers are, but that yeah. is a good point. Yes. Yeah. I feel like 15 20 years ago that would have been like one of the three or five best catches of the year and I feel like I see catches like that over and over again on Saturdays now. The one thing that I would want to say though about this is that I mean, there's no reason that game should have been close. Like you kind of we talk about the rivalry piece of this. Like Auburn had just come off a three touchdown loss to New Mexico State. Like I don't I mean, I just just hearing that, if if you follow college football, you should just know how absurd it is. New Mexico State beat Auburn by three touchdowns. The next week, they're about to knock off Alabama on their home field. And then Jalen Milrow throws that pass. And I, I mean, I don't know about you all, but when Isaiah Bond comes down with that ball, I screamed in a way that like upset everybody in my house. Like I just, I mean, the, the throw was on a rope, the catch, like all of it. I, I mean, I'm trying to think, I mean, I, it's not a Hail Mary, but like, when have you seen a throw like that to win a game like that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm, I'm sure that you know. I mean, I guess I saw the Michael Westbrook Cordell Stewart throw. You know, I mean, we've seen. I, I mean, there know, was I'm the two a throw to Devonte Smith in the national title game. I mean, that was a yeah, different kind guess, of play, but yeah, yeah, I was there for that. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it just, it was absurd. And I just want to say, shout out Jalen Milrow, H Town. You know what I'm saying? That's H Town kid right there. And, it's about time in Alabama. Bill- you know, Alabama got a break. That's that's what I say. I mean, that kid got benched early in the year. You look at the raw tools, the ability to make that throw under those circumstances. It's just unbelievable, man. And again, that's why we watch college football, man. Like, this is what it's all for, for that kind of shit right there. Quote of the week, Auburn coach Hugh Freeze asked about the decision to not rush Milrow very much. You can second guess it. Yes, yes, you can second guess it. <laughs> We'll talk a little bit more about uh, the coaching carousel coming up in our bonus segment. But up next, LSU, Kim Mulkey, Angel Reese. What in the hell is going on? NCAA Women's Basketball Defending Champion, LSU, will host Virginia Tech on Thursday night as part of the ESPN's annual SEC-ACC Challenge. Tip-off is at 8 p.m. Central from the Maravich Center, the start of a game that will likely be the main event of the 14-game showcase between the two conferences. It's the only one featuring a pair of top 10 teams. But there's a lot more intrigue to the matchup than whether LSU can win its eighth straight game. And it primarily centers around LSU star Angel Reese, who was benched in the second half of LSU's fourth game on November 14th and hasn't suited up for the Tigers since, missing a total of four games. Reese didn't even accompany the team to the Cayman Islands for a tournament last week. LSU coach Kim Mulkey has declined to give a timetable for Reese's return. But last week, Mulkey seemingly hinted at some turmoil behind the scenes. Has Angel been practicing like up to this point? 
Angel, did I? Were you at the press conference the other day? Yeah. Angel, I'm gonna give you the same answer I gave oh, you. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Oh, all right. I got you. Is she gonna? I'm not. Have you decided not, if she's going to the Cayman Islands yet? If I have, I wouldn't tell you. Okay. You're not entitled to that information. Okay. Okay. So I'll say it again. Angel was not in uniform tonight. Angel is a part of this basketball team, and Angel will be back sooner than later. Angel Reese is still on the team. So <laughs> so we've got that. But Josh, if Kim Mulkey has anything to do with it, none of us are ever going to know what's really going on behind closed doors at LSU for now. Um, and we can try to read the tweets and the tea leaves and all of that. But at the very least, it seems like Reese is at odds with more than Coach Mulkey in the LSU locker room. So what do you make of what's going on in Baton Rouge right now? Well, it's tradition that we know why players are suspended based on interpreting uh, Twitter battles between the players' uh, mothers, like Flage Johnson's mom saying that Reese has a GPA under 2.0, I believe, uh, was, uh, was what was alleged. I think so much of what is going on here is being refracted through uh, everyone's feelings about Kim Mulkey. And from Kim Mulkey's tone of voice, from Kim Mulkey, the way that she's handled press inquiries about this, the way that she's acted like it's somehow strange that people want to know why Angel Reese, the biggest star in women's basketball, isn't playing this game, that it's like somehow rude for people to even ask her, to have the temerity to, to wonder why this kind of icon is not appearing on the court um, because it's actually normal for players, college players, not to play in games. And it's also kind of normal for coaches not to explain it. I mean, look uh, a, a few uh, yards away in the LSU football facility, asked why cornerbacks Deuce Chestnut and Denver Harris weren't playing and whether they're going to be active again. Brian Kelly said, internal things need to be accomplished that I really can't discuss. Seems kind of similar to what Kim Mulkey said, but he said it in a nice tone of voice. They're not, they're also not like huge star players, although having them might have helped LSU against Alabama. But, um, you know, Stefan, I would argue it's not what Kim Mulkey is saying, but it's how she's saying it. Yeah, though a four game absence is a long time. And this is the defending national champion and one of the most prominent coaches in the history of women's college basketball and a future potential top draft pick in the WNBA. Um, you know, maybe no one is entitled to information, but it's certainly not how I think a program would normally operate. What if it was Dawn Staley and she said, I understand why you want to know it would violate her privacy, yeah. it would violate the privacy of the team. Right. I understand, but like, I just, unfortunately, I can't tell you anything. And when there is information to share, I'll share it. Sure. Thank you so much for your interest. <laughs> that's fine. That would be fine. But that's not what Kim Mulkey has done. Kim Mulkey is blaming reporters and making it seem like everyone else is crazy for asking and been hostile and confrontational when asked about why this mega star athlete who was probably the most prominent women's basketball player during and after their run to the national championship last year 
suddenly vanished from the team. Not because she got injured. She was benched for the second half of that game and hasn't played since. Um, does this serve Angel Reese? I don't know. It sure seems like Kim Mulkey is kind of allowing speculation to go crazy here. Emma Bachelary, I thought, had a good piece in Sports Illustrated that made that point. That, that, as she writes, that approach has only drawn more eyes to the situation, and it doesn't seem like it has protected Reese. Right. And I guess, like, I mean, you know, you'd like to think that Kim Mulkey could handle this better, but I don't know that any of us would ever expect that, because I do think that she has sort of a fundamental... Problem? Yeah, <laughs> like a, 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 a fundamental distaste for the media, in, in any way, right? That like this is not something that she wants to deal with, and she's been fortunate enough for a lot of her career to work in places where there's not like a robust media presence. Like she was in Waco for much of her career before she went to Baton Rouge, right? So she's not often had to be in the spotlight here. But you know, all that said, I'm open to the possibility that Angel Reese is actually at fault here, right? And that. Maybe she needs time away from the team or the game to get her affairs in order. And, I, and I'm not the biggest Kim Mulkey fan, and we can get into that later. But she is the coach, and it's her prerogative to run the program as she sees fit within reason. And so, you know, I'm I'm willing to accept that maybe Angel Reese is not playing for totally legitimate reasons right now. But I, I do agree that, like, maybe there's a way that Kim Mulkey could have handled this better, but like given who she is, I don't think she's doing anything unusual, right? Like when you go to play for Kim Mulkey, like if you're a player and you know her background and you know, you know, what she believes, how she treats media, how she's treated former players, all that other sort of stuff, like you don't go there expecting that she's going to protect you in that way, right? Or that like she's going to have some sort of knack for drawing attention away from you if you've done something wrong. So um, I just kind of think that this is what they all get. You know what I mean? And uh, you would you'd like for Angel Reese to have a better curtain call for her seniors for her last year in college basketball, but that just doesn't seem like what's going to happen. She is a totally confounding character and a complicated character, and not just Wait, a, which one? Which one? Angel or Kim? Uh, Kim, I'm talking about at the moment, <laughs> okay. and and not in the. I don't even mean that in the way that um, you know we talk about Bob Knight and say he's complicated because he like choke literally choked a player. Oh, he's complicated because. You know, he cares about academics. Oh, he choked a guy. Oh, and he won. He won a title. I think that there is some legitimate complexity here. And there's just so much on the anti-Kim Mulkey ledger that we could put. Her flippant attitude around COVID for years now. Mm -hmm. The way that um, she treated Brittany Griner's situation in, in Russia. Somebody who really helped her in, in terms of her coaching career getting to the elevated status that she has. And just in the most offhanded way possible, just like dismissing, um, you know, the the severity and the the horror of what Brittany Griner was going through. Um, and before and that, that, Josh not being supportive of Brittany Griner after she came out as gay and basically yes. ostracized her from the Baylor program. Yes, great point. Um, then on the other side, you have um, Alexis Morris, the point guard for. LSU's a national championship winning team last year. Um, Kim Mulkey kicked her off the team at Baylor. Part of the narrative of the season last year was Alexis Morris coming back to LSU, saying, I need a Kim Mulkey in my life, um, and talking about how hitting that low point was the thing that she needed to make her a better person and a better player. And it was all 
kind of hugs and, and love. And, um, and then you had Angel Reese um, and Fly J. Johnson, Fly J., um, who's a, a star rapper, saying, Kim, let us be us. Um, Angel Reese transferred from Maryland, saying, they wouldn't let me be me. Kim Mulkey let me be me. I love Kim Mulkey. Kim Mulkey is the greatest. Um, and I think maybe in retrospect, the thing that's surprising is that last year went as smoothly as it did um, with all the with all the transfers, with all the notoriety, with all of the the high pressure that came with that um, really big kind of final four run. So so maybe the thing that's more to be expected is that you have all these players with huge personalities. You have a coach who's a taskmaster who has her own kind of issues. So the idea that there would be drama and even, you know, Joel, after anybody wins a national championship, it, it's kind of the story as old as time that it doesn't run as smoothly the next time through. And with this kind of cast of characters, maybe the bumpiness is going to be even more exacerbated. Right. And I mean, the thing is, is we haven't I mean, it's really early in the season. It's very common, maybe less so in women's college basketball, but probably increasingly so as the talent you know, you know, is more spread around for a dominant team to lose early in the season. Like they're just figuring it out. Like maybe they don't come out with the appropriate level of intensity, maybe, you know, offseason conditioning, whatever, you know, teams are, are learning each other, whatever. And they lost that opener to Colorado, who is also a ranked team. And it exposed some things that maybe none of them were quite prepared for. I mean, you know, it was Kim Mulkey, after that loss to Colorado, like she really went off on them. Mm -hmm. um, she yeah, I mean, she went and said, and I'm looking this up, I'm disappointed and surprised in some individual players that I thought would be just tougher and have a little fight and leadership about them, right? Like that's, a, that's I mean, that's one loss. That's the first game of the season that she already kind of opened up on them. So it does sound to suggest that like, you're right, that maybe last year, went a little bit more smoothly or, you know, or it's possible that it was more chaotic and we just didn't know and they managed to come together in time. Um, and, and we'll never know like what it was like melding all those personalities together. But the one thing I would also say too about LSU is that, you know, yeah, they are the defending champions, right? But they also caught a huge break last year. Like they got to play Iowa in the, in the national championship as, as opposed to South Carolina. And South Carolina had beat their ass earlier in this, in the regular season. They beat them by like 24 points. And so if LSU had had to play South Carolina in the opener, there's a chance we wouldn't even be caring about Andrew Reese and any of this stuff right now, right? Like there's, you know, like maybe they would kind of be flying under the radar and they would have a chance to kind of build up and we wouldn't be putting the spotlight on them. But you no, know, right now they, they got lucky. They won the national championship. They got lucky. Uh, They're lucky. Yeah. Then he played South Carolina. I mean, I think. I, again, there is an good. asterisk on the banner that they raised that says didn't play South Carolina. You're right about that. Well, I mean, I, I think we all know, and we've had this fight on here before, college basketball crowns a champion. It doesn't crown the best team, okay? I mean, do you remember who won the men's basketball championship last year? UConn, baby. All right. Do you think UConn was the best team in college basketball last year? Doesn't matter. Not as good as Florida. Not as good it as Florida Atlantic. It does matter. <laughs> anyway, but you know what I'm saying. I just feel like, like we'll probably forget about this by... January, don't you think? I mean, I just kind of like it'll be all behind us. I don't know. These are some big personalities in a top program. Um, a woman in Angel Reese who has a career in the WNBA. We don't know what's happened behind the scenes there. We say that she has a career in the WNBA. We don't know. I mean, a lot of great players don't make that league, but you're right. 
she has huge flaws in her game. She can't sure. She can't shoot. I think she is often a defensive liability. What she prides herself on is her kind of toughness down low, her rebounding ability, her ability on on putbacks, and she has a kind of leadership quality that um, you know has driven her team to success. But like they brought in Anissa Moro from DePaul, a transfer who is one of the highest scoring players and biggest rebounders in the country. They brought in Haley Van Lith, who has a lot of followers on Instagram and is a great player, too, from Louisville. They have one of the best freshmen to come in, I, I think, in years, and Michaela Williams. Um, this is a team, you know, the the thing that could happen that I'm not saying will happen, but especially they, one of their uh, their big Samaya Smith just had what looked like a pretty severe knee injury. Like, what happens if they're good without her? Yeah. I agree with Joel. Like, I don't think she's a lock for WNBA stardom. And she's really capitalized on this amazing run that she had and they had. Um, And so far, I mean, she's, like, retweeting LSU wins, like, tweets. She's, like, only put out, like, pretty cryptic things on on TikTok but hasn't said anything to, like, you know, suggest that she's being wronged or that she's, like, going to transfer or anything like that. So this could still go in like a million different directions. But I think she's got a lot riding on this. And Kim Mulkey, I think, actually doesn't. Because, like, think of Nick Saban. There is nothing that plays better with a fan base than going after the media. Um, Kim Mulkey is completely bulletproof in that, st- in that state. She can, We can shake our heads at it. Um, her stance on COVID, the majority of people in Louisiana would like vote for, you know, elector public health commissioner. I mean, there's not anything <laughs> that <Right>. she can do <laughs> that's gonna make people think, you know, that that much less of her. Maybe not maybe nationally, but um, you know, a lot of players have her back, the state has her back. And so it just really seems like Angel Reese, despite her fame, despite her success despite her kind of becoming an icon, it just seems to me like she has kind of a lot riding on this, whatever this situation is. Well, is this, if, if for Angel Reese, Joel, I mean, is it worse for her to come back on the team and not play? I mean, how is how does she benefit? How is Kim Mulkey helping her realize her dreams of playing professional basketball in the United States for the best league? She has a lot to think about here, Clearly, and again, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but it does sure seem like Kim Mulkey is not doing anything to help Angel Reese right now publicly. That's probably fair. I guess what I would say to that, though, is that, and this is not going to be the most charitable thing you've ever heard me say on this podcast, but um, you know what you're going to get when you go play for Kim Mulkey. By this point, like if you don't know, it's your fault, right? And I know that every kid thinks that you know, they're going to go someplace and they're going to thrive and they're not going to have the problems or whatever. So, yeah. So, I mean, you kind of get what you get when you when you sign up to play for Kim Mulkey and this is the way she's going to handle it. And the one thing about it is that Kim Mulkey has made no bones about, you know, loading up her roster. I mean, she brought in Angel Reese and she'll bring in the next Angel Reese the year after that. And so they're all going to have to figure it out being on this sort of all star team that they've got now. And so, yeah, it's it's possible and we don't know this, but I mean, there has been some hints on social media and otherwise that maybe Angel Reese has been surpassed on our own team. 
You know what I mean? Like maybe there, there, there are a lot of good players there right now. And maybe she's having difficulty dealing with that. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it. But I mean, I just, I want Angel Reese to do fine. I want her to thrive. I want her to go to the WNBA and be the best player she can be. But like when you go play down there for this woman, um, it, there's no guarantee that she's going to have your back if something goes poorly for you. And I can't remember if it, if it was mentioned, but there's another player, Kateri Poole, who's not been playing either, who is also on the national championship mm-hmm. team. So whether those situations are related or not, um, we don't know. But again, it's like contextual. If Kateri Poole was more <laughs> famous, then the whole conversation would be like, well, what did, what did Kateri Poole do? She was such a great contributor to the team last year. She was uh, you know, such a, a good leader. But it's all just focused on these two people um, because that, those are the ones that people know. Josh Angel, does it surprise you that there's been no reporting about what is going on? It's been two weeks now. This is kind of crazy that there's this complete informational vacuum and nobody's leaking. Nobody's talking. College athletic programs have so much latitude and the ability to ice out reporters. Like if they don't want there to be reporting and often they don't then they can do that. And I think that's just kind of, which is kind of interesting because I'm sure this will be an interesting exercise, but like Angel Reese has to be one of the biggest suspensions in college sports since I was trying to think, like, I don't know, like Jameis Winston had to miss a game in in, in 2014 uh, around his his deal. So I don't, I'm I'm sure maybe there's been some people since then, but this is a, a pretty big deal, but like, that's just what college sports is now. Like trying to report on it is very difficult. You're just not going to get, unless Angel Reese was in trouble with the law in some sort of way, then it's unlikely that we're ever going to get the full story, but maybe we'll get it up through Twitter or the, or the shade, the shade room or something. You know what I'm saying? Well, think about Michigan and how and why that stuff came out. Like we still don't know the full story of what happened there. And every Big Ten school was told about it. Like all all of the like 80s and presidents of those schools know, people in the NCAA know, people within Michigan know, all the people that Connor Stallions paid know what's happening. And there was like one of those people did an anonymous story and like compare that to what's happening at LSU. The only people who know are at LSU. Like there's no like vast network of, of people that could potentially leak. And so in some ways it's surprising. Um, In some ways it's like, women's basketball reporting isn't as well-resourced as college football reporting. And so there are reporters who I'm sure are trying very hard to get this, but in terms of tonnage, there just aren't as many of them. And so uh, in some ways, yeah, it is surprising. And I think the longer it goes, the more likelihood that we'll know uh, eventually. But um, it, it just feels like a particular you know, sport and venue and circumstance that maybe is less prone to, to leaking than, than other things. And, I, and I'll just say kind of to close this out. So speaking of reporters, you know, friend of the show, Chantel Jennings, did a profile on Angel Reese at the beginning of the year. It came out last month, um, October 31st. The only teammate that is quoted in there, past or present, is Kateri Poole. You know, I'm not saying that... Kateri Poole is the reason that she transferred there. Like, she encouraged, yeah. she encouraged her to, to look at LSU. There are a lot of other people on that team that could have been interviewed and had quotes there. And I just, I do find that interesting. So just something to think about. In the next segment, Jonathan Clegg of the Wall Street Journal will talk to us about the Premier League's unprecedented punishment of Everton. Hey, listeners, the holiday season is upon us and the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. 
Browse our selection of hand-poured candles, classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com shop. That's slate.com shop. Happy shopping. Fans of the Liverpool-based English Premier League club Everton marched to the team's home match against Manchester United on Saturday. Here's what it sounded like. Yeah, I can't really tell what they're saying either. Maybe a listener can translate, but pretty sure I heard some fox and fockings in there. (laughs) Inside the stadium, supporters booed the Premier League's pre-match anthem, raised a banner reading Premier League, hang your heads in shame, and waved pink placards bearing the word corrupt. The protests followed the league's decision this month to dock Everton 10 points in the standings for breaking financial rules, the stiffest penalty of its kind in the league's 31-year history. Joining us now, it's Jonathan Clegg. He is, as of today, the sports editor of the Wall Street Journal. Congratulations. And the co-author with Joshua Robinson of The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. Clegg and Robinson, who was on the show last week, also have a new book coming soon, The Formula, How Rogues, Geniuses, and Speed Freaks Reengineered F1 into the World's Fastest Growing Sport. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The protests, John, didn't do much to help Everton on the field. They were trounced 3-0, and everybody should go watch Manchester United's 19-year-old Alejandro Garnacho's absolutely insane bicycle kick goal in that game. But fans raised more than 40,000 pounds in a week to make those pink placards and also to hire a plane to fly over Etihad Stadium in Manchester during a primetime match on Sunday between Man City and Liverpool trailing a banner reading Premier League equals corrupt. John, what exactly was Everton punished for and why are fans so pissed? So Everton was punished for breaking the Premier League's financial sustainability rules. If it comes as a surprise to learn that um, the Premier League has financial sustainability rules, that is because for pretty much the entire history of the Premier League, teams have been allowed to spend as much as they like, often running you know, very close to bankruptcy, often sometimes running into bankruptcy with no punishment, with no oversight. Um, the Premier League has long been a sort of financial wild west. Now, Everton, of all teams, have become the first team to fall foul of these uh, sustainability rules when it turned out that they spent roughly uh, 20 million pounds more than they were supposed to over a three-year period which uh, incorporated the uh, COVID lockdown. What makes Everton fans so mad about this is the fact that um, the 10-point the penalty that they've been hit with, as you mentioned, the harshest penalty in Premier League history, comes you know, against the backdrop of teams getting away with all sorts of nefarious things and escaping unpunished. There have been teams that have been found guilty of fielding ineligible players and escaping relegation that way. Teams that have been found guilty of tapping up 14-year-olds, 
uh, and getting them to sign for their team rather than a rival. There have been teams who have been bought by owners who have come from uh, horrendous regimes, been guilty of um, you know, human rights violations. All of that has been waved through the, by the Premier League. But apparently Everton's overspending uh, is a cause for a 10-point deduction. John, the thing that this reminds me of is a quote that uh, I'm sure Joel is familiar with from the legendary UNLV basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian, which is, the NCAA is so mad at Kentucky, they're going to give Cleveland State another year of probation. The idea being that um, in uh, you know American college sports, the big teams uh, get to skate while the little guys get uh, punished. And it happens year after year, decade after decade. This seems to be what Everton fans believe is happening, that they're, you know, mid-table club, not known as being particularly profligate in spending, is getting an unprecedented punishment for something that even by the admission of this commission was not intentional. It's not like they broke the rules on purpose, were hiding anything, were intentionally cheating. They just kind of made a mistake. Um, while for years there's been talk of, oh, we've got to do something about Man City, we've got to do something about Chelsea, and nothing is happening. Is that a kind of fair, in your more dispassionate, non-fan-addled view, is that a fair description of what's happening here? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, yes, Everton didn't sort of willfully cheat now that they were certainly guilty of irresponsible spending. And I think, you know, there are reports that they budgeted for the team to finish sixth when they finished 16th. And anyone who looked at Everton's squad and thought that they were going to finish sixth probably does deserve some sort of punishment. But, but you'd think that unprecedented punishment equals cheating or equals like hiding things, willful exactly. abuse. Exactly. And just like thinking you're going to do well and not doing well is like... a, a that seems like they a were different ambitious. category of, of error. Absolutely. And to be clear, you know, Everton was found guilty of one breach of these sustainability rules, whereas Manchester City is accused of 115 breaches, which it systematically covered up and obscured from the regulators uh, in a sort of very um, deliberate attempt to cheat the rules. Um, that that case, you know, uh, is still pending. But um, City was hit with uh, by UEFA with a two-year transfer ban for breaking its financial rules, which it then, you know, uh, got out of on, on appeal. And I think, you know, if you look back at that, you know, Manchester City's run in with UEFA, in, in the leaked emails uh, about their defense of that, it came out that City's plan to, to avoid punishment was just to drown the football authorities in lawyers and paperwork. This was a deliberate attempt to sort of obfuscate the, the investigation. Everton was sort of caught with a simple case of, of um, you know, overspending. And whereas Manchester City got away scot-free, Everton has been hit with this dr very draconian punishment. Jonathan, can you just help me out here? Because is it is it fair to say that this punishment by the Premier League is obviously a means to enforce fiscal responsibility on teams? But like, as an American sports fan, you know, isn't irresponsible spending what most fans want for their team? Like, at least, like, trying, right? Like, because that's the big problem here in basketball, um, in the NBA, and in the Major League Baseball in particular, that teams don't even try. Like, they just have, you know, they, they have this salary floor, and they just let their teams, you know, deteriorate until they can somehow win through the draft or whatever. But it just seems kind of crazy to me that a team gets punished for actually trying for trying for spending a lot of money is that is that the right way to look at it or the wrong way to look at it no no i think that's right i think there are some like uh, there are some aspects of english soccer that sort of work to prevent 
teams from sort of, you know, uh, not trying to win. The fact that the, the worst teams get relegated at the end of every season sort of compels you to do the best that you can to to be successful on the field. But yeah, overspending, I mean, overspending has not only been a fact of life of the Premier League for its entire duration, it's pretty much a selling point of the league. Premier League clubs, you know, willingly outspend Every other, you know, domestic league in Europe, they pay the highest transfer fees, they pay the biggest salaries, they lure the biggest stars. That has been the key to the Premier League's success. The reason that the Premier League is the most successful league in the world is because so many of its clubs have spent irresponsibly and uh, that sort of inflationary pressure on on um, Premier League uh, transfer fees and, and wages has you know brought so many of the the world's best players to 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 England. So it feels a lot like um, the Premier League is sort of selectively applying this sort of criteria now after years of sort of benefiting from its team's overspending. It feels like it's, it's sort of suddenly decided now, you know, perhaps in the, in the aftermath of COVID when, you know, many clubs did lose money, that they are now much more interested in, in operating sustainably when in years past, um, they, th- th- this sort of punishment would never have been handed down. And the argument here is that if a club has the revenue to spend like Chelsea and Man City and Man U and other top tier teams do, then that's fine. That helps the Premier League. It drives up salaries. It drives up interest. It brings more talent to the league. But if a middling team or a lower tier team spends a lot of money, it just generates losses. And that drives up costs for everybody else in the league because it artificially inflates wages, which is not good for everybody. It presents a risk that if a team loses too much and they go bust, that that's going to have fiscal repercussions throughout the league. But this is such a slight amount of money, too. If we're talking like $8 million over their their limit, and the risk for Everton, which we have not discussed here, and I think this is what I'd like you to, to talk about a little now, is that, look, they dropped from 14th place in the 20-team league to 19th place and in the relegation zone. And if Everton get relegated, that's a loss of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for the club. They have never been out of the top flight of English football, um, at least in the last 70 yeah. years. Yeah, and, and I think the, the threat of relegation is, is um, you know, now a, a very real one. You know, I think perhaps Everton will be, will be saved by the fact that, that the Premier League, the bottom teams of the Premier League this year seem abnormally weak um, relative to other years. But the, the likelihood of Everton finishing 10 points ahead of the relegation zone, 10 points clear of, of the relegation zone, I'm not sure. You know, it, it, it certainly raises that. I, I think it also raises important questions about the teams that got relegated from the Premier League last year, Leicester, Southampton. You know, they, they were the ones, they, at least, they, they were the ones who were, who were, who actually were sort of, um, you know, punished by Everton overspending. Everton stayed up at their expense last year. They ended up getting relegated. And yet it's only now that the Premier League is applying the, the, the penalty. If you're not going to punish Everton during the actual time period when this was going on, then why not wait until you can punish all of these clubs, Man City, Chelsea, and Everton, at the same time? That way, just from a public relations standpoint and from a fairness standpoint, you don't get people to say, oh, you're just going after the minnow, the big guys always get to skate. It's not like they were moving with e- extraordinary vigor, uh, even against Everton. Like, um, 
you know, if they're talking about that this was happening over a three-year period, it just seems stupid, <laughs> um, both from a fairness standpoint and from a, you know, staving off protest standpoint. That's right. And and, and I think it also, it, it almost, um, you know, came out of the blue as well. You know, like, I, I feel like the, the Manchester City um, case has been rumbling on for so many years and is sort of part of the um, you know, wider uh, uh, discussion about uh, Manchester City and the Premier League, whereas Everton's, you know, minor overspending was not something that fans were fans of rival teams were sort of unduly worked up about. I don't think fans of many fans of, of other clubs even knew that Everton had sort of breached the sustainability rules. I, I mean, to be honest, I don't think many fans know there are sustainability rules in the first place. So the fact that Everton breached them was not something that was sort of front of mind um, in the sort of English English soccer discussion. Yeah, I think the Premier League, you know, raised some major issues for itself with how it's handled these, and especially you know when it when it comes to like I say, the sort of discrepancy between. Everton being accused of a single um, charge versus Manchester City's 115. I mean, you know, what the sort of magnitude of punishment that City, you know, should uh, should be given based on a 10 point deduction for one breach. A 1,150 point deduction. It's just math. Exactly. What? What? what exactly. What? What are we? Uh, what are we? What are we doing here? Everton fans are pissed. This is an unprecedented punishment. What recourse? Is there, does Everton actually have here? Like, what can, what can be done, uh, in the face of this unprecedented punishment? So, Everton can, um, appeal the judgment, um, all the way up to the, uh, European Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is how Manchester City, um, got out of its, uh, two year transfer ban that was handed down by UEFA. Short of that, there's not much that the, that Everton can do because, Let's remember when, when we say that the Premier League has handed down this punishment, we're really talking about the 19 other clubs that make up the Premier League. The Premier League does not have a sort of all powerful commissioner like Roger Goodell or Adam Silver. This punishment has come, um, you know, via the 19 other uh, clubs who, you know, as, as you mentioned, are motivated by, th- by things like not wanting Everton to overspend so that they don't have to end up paying more to compete, you know, to to uh, to keep pace with uh, how their rivals are spending. But but aren't those other clubs worried about a circular firing squad thing happening? Like if this can happen to Everton, why won't it just happen to every other team next? Because I think it's the Cleveland State argument, Josh, that do you really want to regulate Manchester City? Is that in the best interests of the league? Everton is a smaller fish. You know, sure, historical club has always been in the top tier in England, but when you're coming when you're deciding who to execute, you're going to execute Everton long before you're going to execute Man City or Chelsea who are worldwide brands. Even the mid-table clubs or the lower tier clubs would have that point of view, John? I think well, I think I think it, you, what you're saying is is correct, but it sort of um it, it implies a level of kind of rationality and um you know collaborative thinking that English Premier League clubs have never been <laughs> you could never be accused of, of following. Um you know generally that they, they sort of lurch from one sort of crisis to the next, and anything that they can do to sort of you know safeguard their own position at the expense of any of their rivals is you, you're usually the first sort of course of action. So, yes, you're quite right, but 
Um, you know, that that is not typically how English football clubs operate. So what could happen here? Well, I think the likely the likely the likelihood is that um, Everton will appeal um, this verdict, and knowing how uh, the sort of very slow pace at which uh, these things get heard, it would not surprise me at all if the um, verdict isn't delivered until the the outcome of this season's uh, Premier League uh, is decided, and it would not surprise me at all that if Everton survive by more than ten points. The, the initial punishment is maintained, or if it turns out that they, you know, they, they can lower it to eight points and that will ensure. I'm, I, I, I would be very surprised if it turns out that the 10 point deduction that was handed down last week is, ends up being the reason that Everton is relegated. But if they would have gotten relegated under a 10 point penalty and then they lower the penalty and some other team gets relegated, then that team's going to file an appeal. It's going to be a shit show. Invariably, it will be a shit show. That is just the way that English football operates. But um, that's why I'm sure that the appeal will be heard after the season so that they know for sure what impact their final decision will have. Okay, that's well and good. They're going to bury them in procedural bullshit, which is to be expected. But what does the Premier League do about Man City? I mean, 10-point deduction, 50-point deduction, relegation? I mean, how do you actually address this? Or do they do what you were suggesting the the league might do with Everton, which is to wait till the end of the season and calculate just how many points um, we can deduct them without forcing them to be relegated? Yeah, I'm almost certain that will be the end result, because as much as I say that English football is not famous for forward thinking and sort of a rational approach to these sorts of decisions, I do think that even the 19 other teams that make up the Premier League recognize that relegating Manchester City is probably not in the best interests of themselves or English football or the Premier League as a product, which is how they like to think of it now. So um, I, I'm, I'm sure that, again, there will be some uh, useful delays, some more stalling. And eventually, once the outcome of this season's title race is, is known, you know, the, the uh, requisite punishment will be handed down. And I highly, highly doubt that it will result in Manchester City being booted out of the league. Jonathan Clegg is the sports editor of the Wall Street Journal. He's also the co-author with Joshua Robinson of a book about the Premier League, The Club. They've got a new book coming out about Formula One called The Formula. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. We just finished talking about Everton. The club was a founding member of the Football League in 1888 and has competed in the top flight of English soccer for 121 out of 125 seasons. Its nickname is The Toffees possibly after a candy store, according to Wikipedia, named Mother Noblets, or after ye ancient Everton Toffee House, operated by Mob Bushnell. The website fanchance.com lists 157 different songs sung by Everton fans. I don't know, you have to learn them all, but maybe just one or two. So let's start with one or two. It's a grand old team. Hail, hail, the Everton are here. What the hell do we care? What the hell do we care? Hail, hail, the Everton are here. What the hell do we care now? For it's a grand old team to play for. For it's a grand old team to play for. 
We don't care what the red shite say. That would be Liverpool. What the fuck do we care for all we know that there's going to be a show when the Everton boys are there? Banks of the Royal Blue Mersey. Oh, we hate Shankly and we hate St. John, but most of all, we hate Big Ron and we'll hang the Copites one by one on the banks of the Royal Blue Mersey. Copites, also fans of Liverpool. So to hell with Liverpool and Rangers too. We'll throw them all in the Mersey and we'll fight, fight, fight with all our might for the lads in the Royal Blue Jersey. Joel, what's your Banks of the Royal Blue Mersey? So almost 10 years to the day later, I'm finally ready to apologize for myself and on behalf of my former editor, Ben Mathis Lilly, and the defunct BuzzFeed Sports Vertical. So let me explain. In the fall of 2013, I was working as a senior sports writer at BuzzFeed in New York when I submitted a list of story ideas to BML. Somewhere near the bottom was one about the season-ending showdown between New Mexico State and Idaho. And at the time, I could look that far ahead into the future and figure out that neither one of those programs was going to have much to play for by the end of the season. Both teams had gone 1-11 in 2012 and would be playing as one of only six independent programs in the NCAA football bowl subdivision after their old league, the WAC, fell apart. So basically, New Mexico State and Idaho would be playing on November 30th, 2013 for Pride. And that's about it. There was no conference title, no bowl game, not even a little made-up trophy uh, at stake here. And in retrospect, I should admit that I actually only pitched this idea so I could go to New Mexico to cover a game. I'd never been to New Mexico, just kind of wanted to see it. Hey, BuzzFeed was rolling in venture capital dough at the time, so hey, whatever. (laughs) But... BML and BuzzFeed was smart enough to suggest that I just cover the game from home, which fine. I had recently learned to make GIFs on my computer and I could post videos in my posts, so I figured I could make something of it. So if you want to know why Viral News Shop didn't make it, it's probably because people like me were dedicating my efforts to post about a pair of 1 in 10 teams during a week when there were games between Auburn and Alabama, which became Kick 6, or the Michigan and Ohio State game, or the Florida State and Florida game. Anyway, we ended up running this post on December 6th, 2013, with the following headline. The least important football game ever. The subhead. Did you hear about what happened when Idaho played at New Mexico State last Saturday? Of course you didn't. Look, (laughs) this is not my most compassionate piece of journalism, and here's a couple of lines from it. Their season finale on Saturday was, in some ways, a bizarro-style Iron Bowl. This game would involve none of the following. A rivalry good football, media attention, fan interest, or a trophy. Are you ready for some football? If so, why? Anyway, New Mexico State went on to win that game 24-16 to close out its season at 2-10. Afterward, then-head coach Doug Martin told the Las Cruces Sun News, it was huge to finally win one. 
That's a footprint that our seniors put down that our young guys can carry into the Sun Belt next year. And yeah, New Mexico State and Idaho were set to join a newly reconstituted Sun Belt conference starting in the 2014 season. Me, not being a nice guy, wrote, This despite the fact that nothing in recent history of either program suggests anything other than a future of more bad football. But at least they'll have each other. So, what happened in the past decade? I'll tell you. It seemed like things were going to get worse for both of those programs. Three years later, the Sun Belt dropped Idaho and New Mexico State. In a statement, the league said it wanted a more regionally contiguous conference and that those schools no longer fit their geographic footprint. So, once again, Idaho and New Mexico State were kicked to the curb without another conference to go to. And in some ways, they faced the existential crisis facing Oregon State and Washington State to go. There was seemingly nowhere else for them to go. So what did Idaho do? It dropped back to the football championship subdivision, which O'Head still might call Division I AA. The Vandals joined the Big Sky Conference, a return to their old roots before their failed attempt at competing in the FBS. So this is the league with Montana, Montana State, Northern Arizona, and Sacramento State, among other programs. Idaho had played in the Big Sky from 1965 to 1995, and they'd won nine league championships. And while it's been a slow climb back to being a competitive program, Idaho today is now one of the best programs in the Big Sky and FCS. In fact, the Vandals went 8-3 and three this year, finished number two in the league behind Montana, and will host a playoff game Saturday against Southern Illinois. And what's happened at New Mexico State since then might even be more impressive. Now, I won't pretend the Aggies didn't stink a little longer after being booted from the Sun Belt. They played as an independent, basically against their will, for another four seasons and went 8-30, and 30, before Jerry Kill arrived as the head coach at the end of the 2021 season. Kill had had a lot of success as a head coach prior to showing up in Las Cruces. He coached winners at Southern Illinois and Northern Illinois before landing a job at Minnesota, where he led the Gophers to a pair of eight and five seasons before health problems forced him to resign in 2015. Kill worked as a special assistant for the next few years at Southern Illinois again, Virginia Tech, and even TCU before New Mexico State hired him as a head coach. In 2022, Kill's first season there and New Mexico State's last as an independent, the Aggies won their second bowl game since 1960 and finished 7-6. and six. Following a victory in the Quick Lane Bowl, Kill even lived up to a promise he didn't think he'd have to keep. Kill walked into Tat Reapers on Sunday ready to get a tattoo dedicated to last season's bowl winning team. The reason why he was getting tatted? A little proposition he made with the team leading up to the bowl game. They were kind of dragging just a little bit, and I said, okay, I called them all up and said, here's the deal. I said, you win this bowl game. I said, I respect this team so much and what you've done. I'll get a tattoo on my arm. And they all just went crazy. Diego getting two first downs at the end of the game. I said, as soon as the game was over, everybody else jumping around. I said, oh, boy, going to get that tattoo now. So with Check out the video. It's a pretty cool tattoo. And uh, I don't know what Kill has planned for this year, but he might have to go even bigger. Maybe he might shave off that beard or put something across his chest. Who knows? But New Mexico State joined the new Conference USA this fall, its first league affiliation since being kicked out of the Sun Belt. And in their first year, Kill and the Aggies went 10-3 and and will play for the league championship on Friday against Liberty. Now, when I say New Mexico State went 10-3, and I don't think you understand what this means. The Aggies haven't won 10 or more games in a season in 63 years. And as we mentioned earlier in the show, they beat Auburn 31-10 to for the program's first ever win over an SEC program. 
In that game, the Aggies outgained Auburn 414 to 213 yards and held onto the ball for nearly 39 minutes. That came against the same Auburn team that lost on a miracle last play to the SEC West champ, Alabama, on Saturday, okay? And consider that in 1992, Sports Illustrated tabbed New Mexico State as the nation's worst college football program, saying, over the years, New Mexico State fans have learned to follow football the way physicists once watched the first A-bomb test in nearby Alamogordo from a safe distance. Not anymore. Both the fans at New Mexico State and Idaho have something to celebrate now, something to play for. And they really made that senior sports writer, Joel Anderson, look pretty dumb. In fact, you could say they got the last word. The Aggies and Vandals are thriving, which is not what's happening with BuzzFeed right now. So once again, <laughs> apologies on behalf of me, Ben Mathis Lilly, and BuzzFeed Sports. When you said both the fans at New Mexico State and Idaho, I thought you were... Referring just to two fans, two yeah. Fans. I think it's just two guys, actually. Uh, so, yeah. But I apologize to the boat. To the Did boat. you clear with Ben Mathis Lilly that you could apologize for him? I didn't uh, run this by him, so he was going to find out on the fly. But I assume he's going to agree. I mean, we it, it was a bad idea in retrospect, don't you think? Great gifts, though. Great gifts. Yeah, well, you know, hey, man, look, I mean, that was a talent. I mean, I learned how to make <laughs> gifts. I mean, I... I spent all this time. It's probably the most impressive thing I've learned to do in the last decade or so, <laughs> like learn how to make a gift. Unfortunately, I don't have anywhere to, to, to try that out anymore, guys. So That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to the past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, the gift maker, and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.